Good morning, Sunnybrook. It is good to have you here this morning um, on our online worship service. Um, we want to welcome you, and we also want to just let you know that if, if you are having a difficult time right now or just need to reach out to the, stirf, the church staff, uh, you can do that by just giving them a call, um, contacting them through the website or through email. They would love to hear from you. Um, this morning, Ryan is going to be continuing our study on Psalms. Uh, we'll be looking at Psalms 8 for our text. Um, but before we get into the lesson, we are going to be taking time to worship together. So um, please be encouraged to know that even though wherever you are at watching this, that we are all together worshiping such a loving God.
morning we'll be reading from uh, Psalms chapter 8, the entire chapter, verses 1 through 9. Lord, O Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is a human being that you remember him, a son of man that you look after him? You made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the sea. Lord, O oh Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, hello and welcome to Sunnybrook's online service. Um, my name is Ryan Vincent. I'm one of the pastors here at Sunnybrook, and I feel the need to mention that because often I'm told I need to mention that, and I usually forget. But I know that in our online um, worship services, we do have a number of people who are watching that aren't necessarily from the Sunnybrook family or the Stillwater community. So my name is Ryan, and thank you for joining with us. As Brady has just read, we will be in this eighth psalm today. And, uh, and it's an interesting one. We're going we're gonna to discuss some prevailing philosophical views of humanity, um, some textual translation questions that I have of this particular psalm. And I, I pray that in everything that we say and do here um, this morning or whenever you're watching our service, that God will be honored and glorified and we will come away with a, a, a proper treatment of his holy word and a proper understanding of him. Now, it, this psalm comes in, a, in an interesting time, something of a tumultuous time. I'm sure you could probably say that about all of 2020, but nevertheless, it does feel like we are um, struggling through one crisis after another. I feel like just as soon as we've, uh, we, we've determined that we have something under control, a new problem erupts over here, and it just feels like we cannot catch a break. And it, as a result, I think that we are beginning to ask some very interesting questions that are both good and, and a product of the time. Questions like, what does it look like to, to live in community? In particular, what does it look like to live in community with others? We're asking questions of proximity and, and masks and distancing and whether or not schools should meet. And these things, these discussions have been going on for seemingly months. What does it look like to live as human beings in community with other human beings? And then, of course, as we are dealing with this pandemic, among other things, global disasters, hurricanes, we're asking questions like, what does it look like to live in community with the created order? As human beings, what does it mean that we live in constant interaction with, with other created things? Maybe we're asking, especially in a time of crisis, how do we live more humanely with one another? This, this is a season where Debates are, are all over the place. You can find any debate you like, and you are welcome to engage in it. But 
oftentimes we, we leave those not feeling as though we've won, not feeling as though anyone is all that better informed. We just feel frustrated, quite frustrated. And to turn on the news is an exercise in just seeing more and more of humanity's depravity. And so maybe we're just left with the very simple question, what does it mean to be a human being in the first place? It's an old question, a very old question. Back in the, in the ancient world, particularly the, the time of the, the biblical world of the Old Testament, um, the, the, the vast majority of people defined their human identity in relation to whatever God they followed, God or gods. And since we're the most well-versed with the people of Israel as Christians, as followers of, the, uh, of Israel's God as he's been revealed in Jesus Christ, we can kind of walk through how they um, thought through their humanity they understood themselves to have been descended from the, the, this first man and first woman who were divinely created and the, the, the breath of God was breathed into them. They have the image of God printed on them. They, they thought of their humanity in terms of those who were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and those who were not. Those who followed Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and those who did not. They thought of themselves later on as those who were part of the covenantal nation of Israel and those who were not. And all up into the New Testament, they thought of themselves in terms of those who would consider themselves to be of the Jewish heritage, tradition, and bloodlines, and those who were not. We called them Gentiles. And I would say for the vast majority of human history, that is, or some variation of it, how we conceived of what it looked like to be human, what it means to be human. But as a as we go on to ask questions of what does society need in order for us to flourish, um, I, I, I think I've sussed out the idea that different ways of thinking have, over a large swath of time, crept into our concepts of what it means to be human. It's, it's interesting, the, the ideas that are tossed around at the uh, highest academic levels will eventually filter down to your dinner table. And so what was speculation and buried in a book that was too dense for any of us to actually read several hundred years ago is just common thought now, even if we don't know it. And so I, I, I think that what's happening and maybe what's coming to its fullest fruition is that we no longer define our humanity by what God or gods we follow, but rather we have begun to define our humanity in relation to the rest of the created order. Do you see that, that, that distinction? I'm no longer defining myself and what it means to be human and what it means to be human next to another human named Steve Broadway in relation to a transcendental being but rather I'm looking around at other things to define me. And so I want to trace here two different approaches that I have, um, they're not the only two, but they're two prominent approaches to the attempt to answer the question, what does it mean to be human? And the first is this, 
a human being is the best of all animals. Now, that might sound strange to your ear, but I, I think what they're getting at is they're looking at the rest of the, the, the animal kingdom, particularly the mammal kingdom. We are, by definition, mammals, warm-blooded. We have hair on my arms, hair on my head, right? And I think that over the, the millennia, philosophers and thinkers and social critics have started to conceive of us as being far more like, um, like an animal than like someone who has the very imprint of God, image of God on our souls, on our minds, on our bodies. So there are, there are a couple of variations of this. There's, to be human is to be like a, to, to think of it as, as like a high-functioning animal. And so on the screen, you're going to see a list of ideas here. And I want you to notice, I gave you the names for, for a reference, but I want you to notice the dates. So first of all, way back in the 4th century B.C., Aristotle said that human beings are merely political animals. They're like animals who have established governments. And, and he says that to, um, as, as something of a compliment. As like We're a very high-functioning animal. But if you look down the list, Edmund Burke, who is an Irish philosopher, now we've jumped way into the 1700s, well into what would become known as the Enlightenment period, where we really began to question traditional religious beliefs. Edmund Burke, a, a philosopher, said that we are simply animals who are religious. You see, Aristotle said that we're animals who have established governments. Edmund Burke would say that we are animals who have established religions. But then Ben Franklin, you know Ben Franklin, right? So uh, an American statesman, he says that we are tool-producing animals. We're just animals that know how to make screwdrivers and hammers, which puts us at a distinct advantage over other animals. All of this is being used to describe um, human beings as animalistic but very advanced Thomas Carlyle, a British philosopher this time, says that we're not just tool-making animals. We're really good at using the tools, which indicates a, a higher capacity for learning and reasoning. And then the famous Charles Darwin said that really we're on a continuum with animals. And to, and to say it like that is to say um, that we're on this spectrum and wherever you are on the spectrum, you're not that different from those who are very nearby. The, the poles are extremely different, but those that are very close in proximity on the continuum are pretty indistinguishable. And you know, I see what he's saying. But look at what happens when this idea snowballs. Because we went from a high-functioning animal to now um, philosophers are starting to talk about the fact that we are low-functioning animals. So Robert Louis Stevenson, who's more of an author than a, than a philosopher, you know, Treasure Island, things like that, he says that human beings are but a devil weakly fettered by some general beliefs. In fact, he will call our beliefs a handicap for the human race. W.S. Gilbert is an English playwright, and he famously said that humanity is nature's sole mistake. Think about that. We are nature's sole mistake. And if you were to watch many of the, the more famous documentary series like Planet Earth and others like it, you get this sense that the, 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 whoever is writing the script for those shows sympathizes quite a bit with Gilbert's idea that we are, we're a mistake. 
were we to have never happened and to have never become what some would call a cancer on the earth, then the earth would just be this utopian paradise. But B.F. Skinner, to take it even further, he's a rather famous American psychologist from the last century. He said that we are shaped so entirely by forces outside of us and that we therefore have no will, okay? And therefore we have no real freedom and therefore, and watch how slippery the slope gets, therefore we have no dignity. That's a hard pill to swallow for those of us who know what the Bible says about the human race. A German theologian named Paul Tillich, he's a theologian and a philosopher. He played in both worlds. He said, regarding kind of the, the, the fruit of the Enlightenment strain of thinking, he said, God died in the 19th century and man died in the 20th century. And I think what he's, what he's detecting there is a bit of a natural consequence, a domino effect. If, if God is, if we can say famously that God is dead, then it isn't long before you get to, and humanity has no dignity. We are nature's worst mistake. There is um, a, a different idea about humanity, and I think it comes as a consequence of this animalistic paradigm. So postmodernism, which is something of a relatively recent um, way of thinking, looks at the Enlightenment and modernistic concepts of humanity as being um, destructive and really just a high-functioning animal and they, they don't know what to do with the pieces. Remember what Tillich said. Humanity was killed in the 20th century. But the postmodernist says, okay, um, maybe there is no common thing linking them. Maybe there is no universal foundation of humanness. Maybe it's just to be an autonomous self. So... A human being is either the best of all animals or another option is a human being is an autonomous self. And to, to be human is to simply be oneself. Do you hear some of the, um, I guess you could call it the, the self-help mantra in that? To just be yourself. And this gives way to a, an idea called the sovereign self. The sovereign self is, is, a, uh, is a way of thinking about truth. So if I, if I embrace the concept of a sovereign self, then, then I determine truth for myself, by myself, to suit myself. I determine truth for myself, by myself, to suit myself. And I, for the life of me, that seems to just be the shakiest board in the floor. But for many that is actually how we, we go about our day. That's how we conceive of our humanity. And if I were to write a creed uh, for this movement, it would just simply be, believe in yourself. Seems innocuous. Seems like it would fit fine on a, on a get well card or on some sort of a condolences card. But believe in yourself. I've heard it. I've probably even said it. And I don't I don't know if I have biblical merits to do so. 
it seems like my options are, to some degree, reduced to this idea that humanity is so depraved that we wish it didn't exist and it's not even worth saving, or humanity is so intrinsically good that the best thing that you can do is to just look deep inside oneself to find the goodness in you. But I don't think those are our only options, and I'm sure you knew that was coming. I think the kingdom of God looks different when we ask questions like, what does it mean to be human? I've heard some compare some of our current social upheaval to that of the late 1960s. Um, It's a bit of a a paradigm-shifting, little compressed uh, period of time in our nation, much like the, the late 60s. And I don't know if that's true, but I thought, well, I'll go and look and see what are some of the issues that were being dealt with in the late 60s. You know many of them. And, and how were some of the theologians asking questions to those particular issues? And I found this fascinating um, approach. There's a Jesuit priest named Jean Danilou. And in his book, The Trinity and the Mystery of Existence, he said this about the late 1960s. He said this in 1969. He said, the search for God lies at the heart of today's crisis. The search for God lies at the heart of today's crisis. And maybe he means something along the lines of um, our our deep uh, human need for God and communion with him is is fueling all of our social attempts to, to fix things. Maybe he's just saying In the end, none of this can be done apart from God. He said that what what society needed in the late 1960s was it had a deep need for contemplation and silence, and specifically silence before God himself. Can you imagine that? Silence in the presence of God. And I think that that might be what we need. I think we need to sit and listen to the one true triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has revealed himself in this. He has given you and I his spirit to guide us. And he's asked us to read this, to know this, and to apply this in the context of community among fellow believers. He's given us his word, his spirit, and his church. And I think we need to sit in contemplation and silence before him and and know and love these resources that he's given us. Our Bibles begin with the phrase, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Literally, God speaks and the universe listens and it obeys. And that's how Psalm 8 began. If you go back to Psalm 8, verse 1, it says, Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. He says, from mouths of infants and nursing babies, you've established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. He says, God, you are incredible, and we can see that throughout the heavens, speaking specifically of the stars in this, point, in this case. 
That your created order testifies to your magnificence is what it says here. The, I, the, the word translated as magnificent is adir, which in other translations would be majesty or might or power. It connotes royalty and, and, and supremacy. So magnificence might sound like it's just a really cool name, but the, the actual word adir is asking us to recognize how big and powerful and beautiful and sovereign he is, and we see his glory all over the place. We marvel at his creative power. And I, I find it interesting that it quickly turns to, from the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you've established a stronghold. This passage is famously contested across uh, biblical scholarship in, in terms of to what it references. I, th I think we can boil it down to one basic concept without getting too specific. Probably a good practice to employ with the Psalms. But I think what it's saying is that God works his majesty even through surprising, even weak, humble means. When babies cry out, he still triumphs. Some believe that that might be referencing prayer on behalf of humanity. I think that might be a good way to go. But nevertheless, whatever it means specifically, it is asking us to understand that God works his power through surprising means. In fact, I think that one of the themes that we're going to see throughout Psalm 8 is that God, to our surprise, generates honor from humility. And I want that to be a, a little phrase that you, you keep in your mind as we, as we work through this text. There is honor in humility with God. So to, to the question, what does it mean to be human? Biblically, a human being is one who delights in the majesty of God's creative work. That's a biblical concept of humanity. That's a biblical anthropology. And then as we, as we move into the next set of verses, you'll see that this idea is paired with the idea that biblically a human being is the delight of God's creative work. Not only do humans delight in what God has done, we are ourselves an object of his delight. Verse 3 continues, When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place. He says, When I look up at the night sky and I see the most incredible display of your splendor, I ask, What is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him. You made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. That's an astonishing little stanza there. When I survey everything that you've done, and then I look at me, and I think that you've crowned me with glory and honor. So not only do we delight in the majesty and the magnificence of God, it seems as though he delights in us. This is where I get to what I mentioned earlier, the, the translation question. It says, you made him little less than God. That word for God is Elohim. And uh, as you can see on the screen here, there are at least four different options for how that word can be translated. And that word is used in all four of these senses. It is used for the capital G, God, the, the pronoun God, spe specifically about Yahweh God. It can be used lower G, gods, plural, and it can be used for heavenly beings and angels. 
Now, the CSB, the, the, the translation we're using here today, it, it went with capital G God. And I wouldn't have any good reason to question that, except when we get to Hebrews chapter 2 here in a second. It's going to translate, it's going to quote this passage, but it's going to say, you made him a little less than angels, which is an option for translation. Now, I would say little g gods, heavenly beings, and angels are all in the same category. They are supernatural beings that are not the supreme supernatural being. I think that it's likely that, I think those of you with the ESV and the NIV have on this, um, have in your Bible that it says that you made him little less than the heavenly beings. I think that's probably the best way to have translated it because I believe that it's poetry and the, the, the Hebrew author here is playing off of the words for heavens, which has already been used twice in this poem. And the heavens and the word Elohim, they do not, they're not the same word, but they end in a very similar sound. And I think that this is some of the poetic nature coming out. So I think that the, the, the writer is, again, calling our minds back to the heavens by talking here about heavenly beings. And then the, the Hebrew writer does what he does, which we'll get there in a little bit. But somehow, again, with all this magnificent creation to gaze at, God still like he, he looks at us and he crowns us with glory and honor. He crowns apparently weak, finite beings. He, he gives us glory and honor. And I believe that this is just yet another example of there's honor in humility. God's glory has somehow, some way found its way into humanity. And if you recall Genesis 1, 26... God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. No wonder he's crowned us with glory and honor. We're in the image of God. But I think you would argue we are so insignificant and we are so sinful. We're so small compared to all that out there. Why are we any different? Um, I can tell you that Jesus seems to think that this is fine. Among the numerous New Testament passages that reference Jesus' own intentional humility, I want to draw our attention first to Matthew 21. This is what's known as Jesus' triumphal entry as he heads into Jerusalem the week before he is to be crucified. It says, When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her foal. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, that's the nation, the, the, the city of Jerusalem, see, your king is coming to you. There's that majesty from Psalm 8. Your king is coming to you, gentle. Oh, well, that, that's, that's humble. Mounted on a donkey, that, that's humble. And on a colt, the foal of a donkey, that's humble. This is not a kingly war horse. This reference from Zechariah 9, 9 is is painting a picture of a king coming in humility. There's honor in humility. It's been demonstrated by our Savior himself. And I think if we head back to the psalm, we'll see how this starts to, to connect. Because biblically, 
A human being delights in the majesty of God's creative work. And biblically, a human being is the delight of God's creative work. And biblically, a human being delights in caring for God's creative work. If you look at verse 6, it says, You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky, and the flesh of the sea, and pass through the currents of the sea. He's given us this charge to be over everything. Hmm. We rule the earth as God's under-governors. It's a very fascinating idea, but it's not a new one. If you go back to Genesis 1, that was the end of that first little description of our, uh, our imago Dei. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then it says, they will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the cre- creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. But look at how it continues. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. In other words, have babies, make a lot of them, move everywhere, and then take care of this world and spread my image around this world. And then I want my image, which you've spread all over the world, to rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. And then in Psalm 8, it reminds us of that very first instruction. But I know what you're saying. We have failed this task. That was Genesis 1. Genesis 3, our first parents sinned. In Genesis 3, their sins were judged. They were expelled from the garden. And then we are broken now. And you and I and every other human being that's ever walked the earth has done so in brokenness. A tarnished image bearer. Yet, Christ, this is where... This is where Psalm 8 just has this beautiful, rich trajectory through the Scriptures. Psalm 8, it, 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 is, it is picked up by the New Testament as evidence that Christ has redeemed us. There is truly honor, long-reaching honor in humility. Go back to Matthew 21, and you see verse 14, no, 15. This is an encounter with Jesus. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that Jesus did and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. That that literally means save us, son of David. That's a kingly, uh, that's that's an appeal to a kingly figure full of majesty. Save us. The chief priests and the scribes were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus replied, yes. Have you never read You have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. The scribes and Pharisees can't figure out Jesus, the one who claims to be the Son of Man, who is is taking his his role as the Messiah. And Jesus says, have you guys, you didn't read your Bible? Like Psalm 8 said that it's going to seem weird. It's going to come from a position of humility, from the mouths of babies and infants. He invokes Psalm 8 to talk about his mission here to redeem. There is honor in this humility. 
But Hebrews 2 is just, it quotes so much of Psalm 8, it's astonishing. Starting in verse 5, it says, For Jesus has not subjected to angels the world to come that we're talking about. But someone somewhere has testified. I love that. That's actually how I, uh, I, uh, I don't know if, you, if you're listening, Anthony Butler, that's how you like to quote the Bible. Someone somewhere said, someone somewhere has testified. What is man that you remember him or the son of man that you care for him? That's Solomon 8. You made him lower than the angels. That's why I think that in the, in the Old Testament it should have been angels or heavenly beings for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. In other words, we don't see the full impact of Christ's sovereign rule. But it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone. So we're to rule the earth on God's behalf. We messed it up. But Jesus came to taste death for everyone to repair what was undone in the garden. And then Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. The redemption of our souls came through Jesus' humiliation as he takes on Psalm 8 for himself. Now if you look at Matthew 28, just quickly, I want to add to this that not only has Jesus humbled himself, he has, he has exalted those he loves. In the Great Commission, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. We've been baptized into the triune name. Our, our image of Godness, if I could coin a word, is being repaired. It's being re-given. We've been, we, we died. That's as humiliating as it gets. But we resurrected with this new image in the name of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we've, if, if that's the case, we've been recommissioned at some level to, to, to fulfill the, the, the instructions given in Genesis 1 where we're told to be fruitful, multiply, and, and spread out fill, out, fill the earth, and then subdue it? Well, if you look at 2 Corinthians 5, there's this passage. Uh, the heading in your Bibles might say something along the lines of the ministry of reconciliation. Look at this. From now on then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet we no longer Know him this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He has a new image. The old has passed away and the new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. If we're to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, I wonder if it has something to do with the message of reconciliation. Therefore, 
We are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He has made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We've been restored and we've been commissioned to go and make disciples. Go and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. And in that sense, we fill and subdue the earth. Now you might say, okay, but... uh, You've been talking about humility this whole time. This seems to have propped us up. Is that honor still available in humility thing true, Ryan? Yes. Last text. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul tells us, Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish, you and I. In the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak, you and I. In the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, you and I. What is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. So that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. There's no room for uh, pride here. In order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So what's one way to boast in the Lord? It's to sing Psalm 8, which begins and ends with the line, O Lord, O Lord, how magnificent is your name in all the earth. See, he has crowned us with glory and honor, but not so that we may be boastful, at least not in and of ourselves, but that we may be boastful in him. What is a human being? I want you to know, as a human being, you are remembered by God. You are looked after by God, and you are crowned with glory and honor by God. And biblically, to be fully human, to be fully, fully human, is to swear our allegiance to the Son of God, is to see God in and worship him above his created works, and is to live in obedience to the word and spirit as image bearers and ambassadors of Jesus. We have labored long on the question, what is a human being? Psalm 8 teaches us that to be a human being properly is to understand who it is that's so magnificent. I leave you with one final quote from a professor named Ken Hurst. He says, It is only as I know God and am known by God, only as I enter into the communal life of God and God enters into me, my life, my family, my community, that I will not only begin to understand myself in relation to God, but also understand that God, the triune God, needs to be the starting point for all thinking about what it means to be fully human. We are made in God's image, and through his transformative grace, we are being renewed, changed into the name of his Son through the power of his Spirit. And there is No greater symbol available to you and I today that human beings do indeed have great dignity and we have been crowned with glory and honor insofar as we know Christ than these symbols right here.
Christ loves us so much that he came and gave his body and his blood so that we can enjoy his fellowship and communion with him forever. So, as you eat the bread, remember that Jesus loves you more than anything else he's created. And as we drink the cup, which represents the precious, precious blood of Christ, remember that he loved you enough to come and die for you. You do have glory and honor. Amen. How great the chasm that lay between us the mountain I could not climb in desperation I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night then through the darkness your loving kindness tore through the shadows of so the work is finished the end is written Jesus Christ my living hope who could imagine so great a mercy what heart could fathom such bound Sealed the promise, you'll bury 
body began to breathe out of the silence the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me then came the morning that sealed the
Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. I pray that this has blessed you, that you have been able to worship well in your homes. And, um, and if you would like to have any other extended conversations about what was discussed in the message today, or really about anything else, just know that we are always available and, uh, and would love a phone call or an email. Um, also remember that um, you have opportunities to continue to support the ministries here at Sunnybrook and abroad um, with the information available on the screen, and, and we definitely appreciate it, and, and, and I believe that God is calling us to, to both sacrifice and to worship Him through our, our gifts and our generosity. We want to conclude our time here by praying together, and... Um, I'm going to pray this over you, and there's going to be a few moments of reflective time where I'm asking you to think of through a few things. So um, you may want to be prepared to just kind of get, uh, I don't know, to an isolated spot if necessary, and to just have a, a moment there with the Lord if you're watching this with others. But let's pray. Lord, your holy name is truly magnificent. You have filled this world with beauty. Open our eyes to see your gracious hand in all your works, especially in those you formed in your own image. Make clear to us ways we have not loved other precious people you have made. Lord, we pray that we will learn to see your glory in all of your works. Teach us to rejoice in your creation and to serve you, our creator, with gladness. Teach our hearts to give thanks for your kindness and providence. And show us how to honor you with all that you have entrusted to us. Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. Make all of those who follow you to be of one heart and of one mind, united in one holy bond of truth and peace, of faith and love, that with one voice we may give you praise. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God in everlasting glory. Amen.